Well, good morning. It's encouraging hope and promise in that song that we sing together, and so it's one of those joys to come together and be able to sing together in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and be reminded of those great truths of the gospel. Have you ever done, uh, you know, I, I enjoy games. Let me start there. Um, those of you that know me know that. I'm not competitive in the slightest. But the, one of the games that is sometimes fun to play with a group is, and you may have done this, where it's zoomed in really close on a picture or something abstract. You try to guess what it is and try to figure out what is it that I'm looking at. Um, the answers can be quite comical before you zoom back out and you see that larger perspective and you're, you realize, oh, that was an elephant, that was a snake, that was a banana, or whatever it was. And again, those results are comical. It's a fun game to play. It's interesting. Uh, but it's somewhat illustrative. Because I think there's sometimes when our study of the Bible that we end up playing that game, whether we mean to or not. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I think there's times where we've zoomed in so much in our study, and it is good to slow down and to study hard and carefully, but we've zoomed in so much that we may have forgotten what the big picture is. What's the overall story? How does this fit into the big picture? And we've either forgotten or instead, if we stop to think about it, we end up guessing because we can't see it. And the results of that guess would be comical if they weren't so serious. Maybe we can even test this out. If I were to ask you to explain to the person next to you what is the story of the Bible. Now, you can only do it in one, maybe two sentences. What would you say is the story of the Bible, how would you answer? How would you summarize Genesis to Revelation? Would you feel the need to provide a separate summary for the Old Testament compared to the New Testament? Or if you're particularly ambitious, would you feel the need to summarize every book of the Bible separately? Well, we'll come back to that question in a moment. It's been a few weeks. We've had a little bit of a hiatus, if you will, from our study in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to return there this morning. This month actually marks three years that we have been studying the Gospel of Matthew. I'm guilty of zooming very far in at times. And we've done a few smaller studies during that time. We take our summer break to study some of the Old Testament prophets. We've been looking at church leadership here at the beginning of the year. But when it comes to the study of Matthew, we have zoomed way in. And my assumption is that for many of you, it feels a bit like a guessing game if I were to ask you, what is the big picture of Matthew? Some of you weren't even here when we started three years ago. And so I thought it might be helpful this morning as we re-engage with this book to stop and remind ourselves of the big picture. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. What is the big picture of Matthew? But even more than that, we're going to zoom out and look at what is the big picture of the Bible as a whole. 
And how does the Gospel of Matthew, the book of Matthew, fit in, weave into that larger story? Leading up to Christmas, we finished Matthew chapter 18, so we'll be jumping back in in chapter 19. You're welcome to go ahead and turn there. And I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning first wanting to acknowledge our gratitude. Our gratitude for salvation, for Jesus Christ, for the cross. Lord, we would not be here this morning if it were not for that. That is the only reason, or that is the primary reason, for which we gather. Everything else, all those other reasons flow out of it. Lord, may our worship be acceptable in your sight this morning. May the thoughts and the meditations of our heart as we work through this text, as we think about Scripture as a whole, as we think about the Gospel of Matthew and how it fits into that grand theme. Would they be acceptable in your sight? Would we think rightly about these things? Would we honor you in that? Would we be encouraged in how we speak and think about you? Would we look for ways to edify one another, to build up the body of Christ, and would we, be, would we be faithful, Father, convict us where we're not, to proclaim this hope of salvation? Help us this morning as we study. Would your Spirit guide us and lead us into all truth? Thank you for the work of your Spirit in our lives, and look forward to what he will do this morning. In your name, amen. Like I said, we're going to be Matthew 19. I say we're going to be there. And just for a moment, Matthew 19 opens, when Jesus had finished these words, and that's as far as we're going to get this morning in Matthew 19. You thought I was going slow before, you haven't seen anything yet. But no, we're, we're going to zoom out. But I wanted to start there because when Jesus had finished these words should be a very familiar phrase to you, a very familiar saying. This is not the first time we have seen this. We've seen this exact same phrase, word for word, verbatim, used three times previously. The end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verse 28, it closes with this same saying, when Jesus had finished these words. Chapter 11, verse 1 opens, when Jesus had finished saying these words. And in chapter 13, verse 53, when Jesus had finished saying these words, this statement helps to identify what will be five movements within the Gospel of Matthew. This very phrase actually helps us to start stepping back and zooming out a little bit, because what it does is it helps to break apart the Gospel of Matthew, help us to see it in these five movements. One of the greatest benefits to our study of Scripture was the addition of chapters and verse numbers. It helps us to more easily identify passages and turn to them in our Bibles. This is one of those extra-biblical helps. I mean, imagine this morning if I were saying, uh, instead of turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, I instead said we will be in Matthew where Jesus finishes his words and prepares to depart for Galilee. Where would you turn? be stuck for a few minutes trying to figure out where we're going. There's actually a couple of times where he's finished a saying and left Galilee. And so when we read or study together, it's very helpful to have that. Couldn't even use 
page numbers to refer to where we are in the text without those, since we all have different translations. By the way, if you wanted to know, the correct one is page 1590. The chapter numbers we have today were developed in the early 1200s by Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of, of Canterbury. About 200 years later, the Old Testament, and uh, a Jewish rabbi named Nathan added the Old Testament verses specifically to those chapters. And 100 years after that, when the printing press was taking off, Robert Stephanus added the New Testament verse numbers, and we've had them ever since. Those are the ones you see there. And they are a great benefit to us in our study of Scripture. And I also want to mention one of the greatest hindrances to the study of Scripture. You ready for it? Chapters and verses and their numbers. Now, why do I say that? It's because these verse and these chapter numbers divide up the text. Subtly, whether we mean to or not, we break it apart. We Come to the end of chapter 18, for example, here in Matthew, and we stop and we assume, okay, now it's a whole new line of reasoning, it's a whole new line of thought. When the reality is this is all intimately interconnected and woven together. And those chapters and verse numbers, as helpful and useful as they are, we have to fight against the temptation of letting them break apart the text of Scripture and preventing us from seeing the united the unity of the text as it comes together. And frequently, because of chapter and verse titles, I think we miss the context and the unity of what is written. Without verses or chapter numbers, there were other ways in which the text was divided out, in which movements were marked, and one of those is what we see and what we've already alluded to here at the beginning of Chapter 19, these repeated phrases or words or themes would help to connect the ideas and they would help to show those movements. They would help to identify sections. They help to link together the text and to, to show what, you know, what theologians may call intertextuality or interbiblical references and cross-references to ideas, to other passages, to theological themes. And so this phrase, while certainly helping mark the movement, is also used to tie together the text. Each of these statements in these five major movements of Matthew open with a narrative description of the events in the life of Christ and then conclude with discourse or teachings. The first movement is preceded, that first one that we see, we see the end of it in the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. But that first movement, which really begins in chapter 3, some might even say in chapter 4, verse 17, is preceded by a prologue. We'll talk a little bit about that this morning and the importance that is to understanding the context and the theme and the purpose of Matthew. And in that prologue, we see the description of Jesus' birth, the preparation for His public ministry. The last movement that we see is followed by the climax of the book, which is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, concluding with His sending of the disciples into the whole world to preach the gospel. This morning, again, I want to revisit that overall message of Matthew and its relation to Scripture as we consider the unity of this book we call the Bible. 
And I asked at the start, how would you summarize the story of the Bible? If you had to summarize it very succinctly and quickly, how would you summarize the story of the Bible? And I, I want to try and do that. Because while there's unique perspectives for, found throughout the Bible, there is a unity to this story. It is a single story. I once heard, and this illustration helped me, so maybe it'll help you as well. If I were to take a big map and unfold it, and I realize we don't really unfold maps much anymore, but bear with me. we pretend for a second that the phones are down and we're having to unfold a large map. It's a map of the United States. It's got all its features, its major cities, its landmarks, destinations. You're planning a trip and a route, thinking about where you might want to go. Now, there's an assumption, a presupposition, if you will, when you open that map, that there is a unity to that map, that if I leave from Los Angeles and follow this map, I will end up in Atlanta, Georgia, or wherever it is that you're traveling to, that there is a unity, there is a cohesiveness to the way this is laid out. But now, let's say I created a new version of this map where the right-hand side looks exactly the same, so we're in Atlanta, so starting in Atlanta looks exactly the same, but as I move west, somewhere west of the Mississippi River, I cut out that map and insert over it, or overlay over the map, a map of Western Europe. I try to tie together the roads and everything else. So now I've got on this map, without any awareness, a map of Western Europe and a map of the Eastern United States, and I see Paris, France. And I say, well, that's great. I can leave Atlanta, Georgia, and be in Paris, France in three and a half hours. Am I going to get there? Not at all. There's no unity to it. Sure, I manipulated the map and I made it look like one, but there's no unity. This map is not going to lead me where I need to go. It is not useful for me. Worse than that, it's going to get me completely lost, possibly endanger my life and those with me. If we do not recognize the unity of Scripture, if we do not talk about Scripture as being united in its purpose, then we really end up presenting a version of Scripture that looks like that blended map. And we'll struggle to get anywhere in our study, in our theology, in our understanding of who God is. Worse than that, if Scripture is not a cohesive unit, if it is not united together, it is dangerous, and it will lead us astray into grave spiritual danger. And many persons don't recognize how dangerous this lack of unity within the Bible really is, or at least a presentation of a lack of unity, or an inability to see the unity. And it can happen at a larger level where someone doesn't recognize or acknowledge the unity of the Old Testament with the New Testament. It doesn't mean there aren't differences, but the unity of this whole overall story or it can happen on a smaller level within individual books of the Bible. There's some who are so skeptical they'll break apart a verse saying there's multiple authors of the same verse hundreds of years apart. And before too long, you begin to hear phrases like unhitch the Old Testament from our faith, or the problem with the modern church is our incessant habit of reaching back into the Old Covenant concepts, teaching, sayings, and narratives. As if the Old Testament is somehow a problem for the New Testament. This is only a supposed problem. It only exists if we do not see the unity of Scripture, the unity of the Bible. And so if we want to avoid this erroneous thinking, we need to take a step back every now and then in our study 
especially when doing a slow and methodical study of Scripture, to remind ourselves of the main purpose, the goal, and how it relates to the overall message of the Bible. So what is the message of Scripture? What is the message of the Bible? You can grade yourself, or you can grade me and come up to me later and tell me how I did. This is how I would summarize the message of Scripture if I had to do it succinctly. I would start with a statement that from Genesis to Revelation, it is the story of God's redemption, specifically redemption from sin and condemnation. If I, that's all I had. I had 10 seconds with someone. It would be Genesis to Revelation, story of God's redemption, specifically redemption from sin and condemnation. Now, if they were stuck with me on the elevator for a few more floors, I would add to it that the story of the Bible and the message of redemption centers on the promise, the hope, and the fulfillment of a king whose eternal reign will put an end to sin, suffering, and death. And the same king suffered, died, rose again in order to rescue all who will follow him. Now that's a lot to work out. That's a brief summary, but there's a lot packed into that. It's pretty dense. That's why there's 66 books within the Bible to work out this story and this plan of redemption and all of those details that comprise that summary. And so as we turn our attention to Matthew, which is one of those 66 books, how does Matthew contribute to this message of the Bible? Because Matthew does not stand alone as just some useful commentary on the Bible. It is part of the united testimony of the gospel to this message of God's redemption. But what are the contours of Matthew? How does it elucidate, help us to understand this message? Let me highlight just a few of them briefly. These are not all of them. These are just a few of them. Why did Matthew write? Well, big picture, it was to proclaim the gospel, the message of redemption, through the life of Christ. Specifically, how Jesus fulfilled all that was prophesied about him. And as you begin to look at this, you realize there's a bunch of other emphases that begin to emerge. And we want to be careful not to neglect those. As one commentator notes, it has been common for scholars to argue that there's a single purpose to Matthew's gospel. So this is a mistake. Few books have a single purpose. Matthew is a multifaceted work, and there are several purposes. I might change that word purpose a little bit. That's being referred to as emphases that arise throughout the book as it does have a primary purpose. The primary purpose is to proclaim the salvation and the kingship of Jesus Christ as it pertains to the story of God's redemption. But there are many emphases that all help to highlight this purpose. And one of these is by looking at what the impact of the story, the impact of the life of Christ has on different persons. We've seen this as we've worked through the Gospel of Matthew thus far, haven't we? For example, what do we see when the Jewish leaders encounter Jesus Christ? We see the religious leaders encounter Jesus Christ. We find antagonism, hatred, ultimately a desire to kill him. 
I know I'm skipping ahead. I've spoiled the end of the story. We haven't gotten there yet. But what about the crowds? When the crowds see him, they marvel at him. They follow him. They ask him to heal them. They hassle and harangue him. What about the disciples? How do they respond? There's a bunch of different responses from the disciples. You see humbling. You see excitement. Think about some of the calling. And I always think of Philip and Nathaniel. He saw me under the tree. They're amazed. At times, they're absolutely ashamed. There's others that encounter Christ. The demons encounter Christ. And what do we see? We see an acknowledgement, some of the clearest acknowledgements of the deity of Christ from the demons. Recognition of the power of Christ, the authority of Christ, the kingship of Christ. By presenting all of these different persons who come and interact with the life of Christ, as the narrative presents the life of Christ, we begin to see who this Jesus is, who this promised Messiah is, and what he looks like in history. It also causes us to ask a very important question, which is this, which group do I most look like when I encounter Christ? Am I more like a disciple? Am I more like a crowd who's entertained? Am I perhaps more like the religious leader who scoffed and mocked Christ? We need to ask that question seriously. I don't think there's any of us who perfectly fit one category in every situation, every time we've been confronted with Scripture, with conviction, But what is the general pattern of your life? Who do you look like? Who do you mirror? We need to avoid that bias where we like to read ourselves into as the the heroes of the story. We read David and Goliath, and we are sure we are David. I'm not saying we're Goliath, but we're those scared Israelites who are watching this thing unfold, hiding behind the rocks until Goliath's dead. We're not Jesus. We're not the heroes. Where do we fall? It helps us to think about that. And it helps to recognize our need for a redeemer. Help us to realize why this story of redemption is so necessary for our lives. There's another emphasis that comes out. And that's the need for evangelism. The need to proclaim the gospel. One commentator notes that the Gospels as a whole, and Matthew specifically, was written certainly for the whole church, but also for unbelievers to present the Gospel to them. It's tempting to say, and scholars, they like to look at it and and fit these Gospels into very neat, tidy categories. It's not uncommon to hear that Matthew was written exclusively or almost solely for a Jewish audience. I mean, there's Old Testament fulfillment. There's a heavy emphasis on Old Testament fulfillment. Uh, Quotations and even dialogue that appears to be rabbinic in style and is Jewish teaching in style. Or even reasoning. And the way Jesus relates to the Jewish people throughout, there's a uniqueness to it in Matthew. And yet I would caution you against such a narrow perspective. 
Because Matthew's purpose was to demonstrate how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And while this would have a unique significance to Jewish believers, it is just as important for all believers. And so there's a heavy evangelistic emphasis and aspect to the Gospel of Matthew. So when we're studying it, as we begin to zoom in and narrow back in to these very detailed discussions and begin to pull it apart, don't forget the evangelistic emphasis, why we're studying it. A third major theme that reappears throughout Matthew is the kingdom of God. This is an important emphasis, not only in Matthew and the rest of the gospel writers, but scripture as a whole. In fact, some have suggested that the the theme, the central theme of Scripture, is the kingdom of God. And again, I think that's maybe overstated just a bit, but they're right to recognize the importance and the significance to the overall trajectory of Scripture from this theme of the kingdom of God and a king and a dominion and a reign. This rule and this dominion is the fulfillment of man's purpose from creation. And we, we see that at the, in the opening words of Matthew. In fact, you can turn there. You haven't been there in a while, so go all the way back to Matthew 1, at least in our study. In those opening words of Matthew 1, we see the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the very first word is the book. And depending upon your translation, it says book or record. And the second word, if you were looking at a Greek translation of this text, you would see the word Genesis. You'd hear a bunch of words you didn't know, and then you'd hear the word Genesis. And we're familiar with this word because the name of the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, is the same Greek word used by Matthew. He begins by saying this is the book which pertains to the beginnings of Christ. And I don't believe for a second that this reference to Genesis is accidental. Just as John opens his gospel by connecting Jesus with creation, Matthew here is doing the exact same thing as he works to establish Christ's dominion, his reign in both heaven and on earth over all creation. I also don't think Matthew is subtle about drawing this connection. Again, the Greek translation of Genesis that Matthew would have been familiar with was often called the Septuagint. And it begins with a creation account of Gen- in Genesis 2, verse 4, with the exact same phrase, the book or the record of the Genesis, of the beginnings. It's the book of the beginnings, Biblos Geneseos. It's the exact same phrase there at the beginning of Genesis and here in Matthew. This type of verbal allusion, again, without chapters and verses, this is how you refer to other texts. This is how you make reference. You call to mind the theology, the importance of a similar text. And so you'll find as you study Scripture, you start to see all these verbal allusions and references. And he's making this allusion and reference back to creation in the very first Adam. And it's, it's very purposeful, but why? Why is it so purposeful? Why did Matthew do this? Why did he need to do this? It's because Matthew is about to introduce us to the new and better Adam. 
the one who will fulfill the promises of Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12.1-3, Genesis 22.17-18, and God's story of redemption. A redemption that is needed because of what transpired in Genesis 3. And notice what Matthew does next in that very first verse. He provides three titles for Jesus. He calls him Messiah. He calls him Son of David. He calls him Son of Abraham. Now, the names themselves are significant, but we're not going to take the time to go through exactly what those names mean. But I do want to show you what Matthew is doing from a big picture by using those three names, those three references or titles. Because he follows those titles with a genealogical list. And I know genealogical lists are probably not your favorite thing when you read through them. But I encourage you to pay attention to them. There's actually a lot to be learned. Matthew provides three sets of 14 names after this, these titles that Matthew gives to Christ. Again, Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Jump down to the end of that list, verse 16, of the genealogical list, and what do you see? You see three, we're going to see three names. We see Messiah. Go 14 names up, and you find David. And go 14 names up, and you find Abraham. Three lists that correspond to the three titles. Now, this list is, this genealogical list is not exhaustive, but it's very purposeful. Because what Matthew does in this genealogical list, which is a true list, it's persons who are in the, the, the lineage of Christ, those who are important to the story, specifically with regard to kingship. And so he calls out persons who are incredibly important to the kingship of Christ. It goes back to David, the greatest of all of Israel's kings, the one whom it was promised it would be in his line that the Messiah would come, to whom it was promised the scepter would never depart. It goes back to Judah, to whom that promise was first given in Genesis 49, about the scepter never departing, the promise of rule and dominion and reign. And ultimately to Abraham, who himself was considered a great and powerful ruler. You may not have realized this, Abraham was on par, he was considered as equal to any of the great kings of the ancient Near East during his lifetime. You may remember Abraham, when he traveled out, he interacted directly with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who actually apologizes to him. Kings don't do that to someone who's under them. He interacts with Abimelech, king of Gerar. Abimelech, likewise, is apologetic toward Abraham trying to make things right very quickly when he finds out that some of his servants had taken Abraham's well. Genesis 14, Abraham defeats four kings. And then you have Melchizedek, the king maker, the priest king of Salem, comes out and blesses Abraham. And so what you have going on in, from the very beginning of Matthew is an introduction of Jesus, and his purpose is to show that Jesus is the rightful king Going all the way back to Abraham, Jesus is the king through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is also why this is not just a Jewish book. This was not just written to Jewish believers. It's written to Abraham through whom all the, earth, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so we see Matthew's emphasis 
upon the promise and fulfillment. I mean, that's really what Matthew is about. He emphasizes in all of these emphases, there is a backwards look, often to the Old Testament, of promises of God, promises in this story of redemption. And what we see throughout Matthew over and over and over again is fulfillment of these promises and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we see the proclamation. We see really the announcement, the heralding that the king has come. Jesus himself even says, the kingdom has drawn near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's God's promises in the Old Testament to bring salvation to his people Israel and to the whole world as they're being fulfilled that results in what we see at the very end. So we just looked at the very beginning of Matthew. Just turn with me briefly to the very end of Matthew, Matthew 28. Because this is the end result. This is what we're aiming for. Matthew 28, all of this proclamation of who Christ is, what is our responsibility, what should it motivate us to do? Well, Jesus spoke to them, that is his disciples, those who were faithful, who followed him. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. There it is, the kingship. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The church's response to the joyful news of Matthew should be to go into all the world and make disciples, that is, followers of Jesus Christ. That's a lot of information about Matthew. There's a whole lot more we could do. In fact, you may have thought I was a little bit negligent in a couple of areas because I left a lot out. But when we get a lot of information like this, there's the question of what do we do with it? And I want to provide you four takeaways. You may have already written out a couple. The last one about proclaiming the gospel certainly falls right in there. But there's four takeaways to help us with the big picture when concluding our, when we think about our study of Matthew and, and looking at the big picture of Matthew. The first one is to remember. Remember that the message of Matthew is the message of the Bible. It is not some separate message. It's not removed from the context of the rest of Scripture. So remember to study Matthew in the context of the rest of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike. Secondly, be encouraged. Matthew is hope realized. Matthew is promises realized. It's the story of how the serpent's head is crushed from Genesis 3. It's the story of the kingdom of heaven drawing near in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the story of a new and better Adam who is able to do everything the first Adam could not do in the flesh. Whereas God became flesh in Jesus Christ to do those things. And thirdly, and we've talked about this already, so we look at Matthew 28, is share. Matthew ends with that calling, with the Great Commission. The point of Matthew is that you share this hope, that you share this message, that you proclaim it. Make 
opportunities, create opportunities, find opportunities to share the good news of redemption from sins through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the message of the Bible. It's the message of Matthew. And fourthly, prepare. The king is preparing his return. Be ready. Do not be caught off guard. Consider your ways. Are you living in preparation of the king's return? Matthew helps us understand how to prepare for the king's return. And it calls us to ask the question, who do I serve? You may be here this morning and you don't know the answer to that question. You don't have a clear answer for who do I serve. If you want to know who you serve, because maybe you don't know how to answer that question, maybe it sounds a little bit of a silly question. I mean, we're in America. We're free, aren't we? No, we all serve someone and something. Sometimes it's some ones and some things. But if you want to know who you ultimately serve, who you really serve in this life, look at your life. And I'm not talking about the Instagram version of your life. Stop and look at your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because your life will demonstrate who you serve. Where do you spend most of your time? How do you spend most of your time? What are your priorities? How do you evaluate your priorities? What does your speech look like, especially in private? How do you treat your wife? How do you treat your children? How do you treat your coworkers, your friends? How do you speak about a boss? How do you speak about employees? If the answer to these questions does not align with how Scripture presents what a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like, lives like, talks like, thinks like, acts like, then you're not serving Christ. You're not serving the King. So my call to you this morning would be to repent before it's too late. So you can't do this by yourself. You can't just make a, a decision here this morning saying, great, I'll just start serving Him. No, you need to come to Him begging and pleading, acknowledging your spiritual Need, your spiritual poverty, asking him, asking him to forgive you. And the wonderful thing is, he will not turn a single person away who comes with an acknowledgement of their spiritual poverty, asking for that. Perhaps you're here this morning and you realize not enough of your life lines up. You have expressed that spiritual poverty. Well, then turn to him. Turn to the king. Come to the king who is also a servant, who's described as a father, who welcomes all who will come casting their burdens and in repentance to him. There's none that he will turn away. It's the message of Matthew. It's the hope of Matthew. It's the promise of Matthew. And we'll continue in that study in the weeks and months, maybe even years ahead. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the reminder of the message of Scripture. 
the hope of salvation and the plan of redemption, your plan of redemption. Father, help us to live in light of your kingship, of your coming to earth, of your victory over sin, and of the hope of salvation. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.